going to be four weeks, last week commencing, and the subject is forming a heart that invites God's touch. By the way, if you don't have study notes, if you put your hand up, someone will bring study notes to you. So if if you need, just wave and keep your hand up and they'll bring it. But you need to keep it up just long enough for them to see where you are. Anybody? You're all good? Yes. The text is Isaiah 66, 1 to 5. We started into this last week. Let me just read. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you will build for me? What is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit, trembles at my words. Humble, contrite in spirit, trembles at my words. So the way I take from that, the way you measure humility isn't someone who goes around and says, oh, I'm not much, don't, don't look at me, don't fuss over me. I just want to be humble. Humility is measured by the way people respond to God's word, the the teachability of the heart, you see. So it's not just a matter of sort of uh, denying gifts and talents and abilities that you've received. Oh, don't look at me. I'm nothing. I'm nothing. People used used to be very common. Someone would sing or do something in church, and you'd go up and say, well, thank you, I appreciate you doing that. And they'd say, oh, it wasn't me, it was the Lord. And I'd always say, no, I'm pretty sure it was you. I heard you sing. I, I saw your lips moving. Humility is measured by a response to the word of God. The one who is humble, contrite in spirit, trembles at my word. And then these strange words that we started into last week, he who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man, and he who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. And so you have the pairing up of something very good and the prophet saying, it's like something very wicked. How can that be? Why is that? Because these have chosen their own ways, middle of verse 3. Their soul delights in abominations. Delights is the important word. These people may perform religious duties. Just put it into today's terms. They, they go to church. They read their Bible. Remember last week? They read their Bible like they count their steps. I've got to hit 10,000 steps. I've got to read a chapter a day. They get it done. But it's not what they delight in. It's what you delight in that measures where your heart is. They have chosen their own ways. Their soul delights in their abominations. I will also choose harsh treatment for them, bring their fears upon them, because because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. They did what was evil in my eyes and chose that which I did not in which I did not delight. So they delighted in their ways, remember? They delighted in their own ways, but they didn't choose what God delights in. That's a heart that trembles at God's word. A heart that delights in what God delights in. A heart that hates what God hates. Five. Hear the word of the Lord, 
you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, let God be glorified that they may see your joy, but it is they who shall be put to shame. Let's just pray. Help us, Lord Jesus, as we look into your word. How cold this, regardless of the temperature, how cold this house will be without your Holy Spirit. Oh, Spirit of God, come and touch our hearts in this place. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're continuing with this text, and especially the second verse. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble, contrite in spirit, trembles at my word. We, we should listen to those words closely. The state of heart, one that trembles at his word, God says he values more than the temple he made, more than any stars or planets he created. This is what God delights in. When I see this kind of heart in a person, you can be sure the creator says, I am thrilled. This is what I delight in. My blessing, my attention will be focused on that person. I look upon that person. God sees, of course, everything. Psalmist, where can I go and hide from you? God sees everything. But he looks at a person with that kind of heart. And I think you all sense the difference. God's um, peripheral vision catches everything. God sets his eye on the person whose heart trembles at his word. So in the last message, we looked at the traits of a trembling heart, and there are still some, you can get those online, I'm not going to review the whole thing. Tonight I want to come at it from a slightly different angle, and what I want to show is that a, a trembling heart, a trembling heart is not just an emotionally moved heart, it's not just a disturbed heart heart, and it's not even just a convicted heart. I'm not asking you to take my word for that. I want to try and show you that from some scriptures. Acts 24, 24 and 25. Paul comes and he's sharing his story and he's brought before Felix. After some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. How many people have said that to the Spirit of the Lord in one form or another? And I think we should notice several things about Felix. First, he knew the content of what Paul was talking about. You get that in verse 22. Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, capital W, put them off, saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Having a rather accurate knowledge of the way. That's Felix. So, Felix knew that Paul wasn't just some maniac. 
some foggy-minded dreamer. He had seen evidence of the working of God among the church. Maybe, maybe Felix knew something of Paul's work as a persecutor of the faith before coming to Christ. That's, we don't know that, but it's certainly entirely possible. And he sees the change in Paul's life. So he knows something about Saul become Paul. Felix knew the basic doctrines, a rather accurate knowledge of the way. He wasn't void of any understanding of the Christian faith. So Felix knew what Paul was talking about. Secondly, he sensed that Paul was telling him the truth about his own sin. He he sensed his own guilt inwardly. It made him feel uncomfortable. That's in 25. And he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Felix was alarmed. What alarmed Felix? My guess is that stuff about the coming judgment. Go away, Felix says. Just just go. I'll, I'll, I'll call you when I want to hear this. What makes him do that? He's troubled. Okay? He's troubled. This, this bothers him. This is unsettling to him. So, Felix not only knew what Paul was talking about, but he was moved in his own heart as truth began to grip him. This is absolutely amazing. The King James says he trembled as he heard Paul speak. Don't read that too quickly. So Paul comes and talks to this pretty high official about the coming judgment. And what did Felix do? Paul, Luke, Luke says that he, ooh, you know, cold morning, he trembled. So he, he physically shook when he heard about, this is not someone who denies what Paul is saying. This is someone who knows the truth of what Paul is saying. He was moved, he was stirred in his heart as the word of God reached his soul. One would think this kind of emotional attachment to the truth of the gospel is the same thing as what the prophet Isaiah was talking about, a heart that trembles at his word, but it's not. It's not. Let's look at another New Testament text. We actually, I wasn't planning this, we considered this this morning as we're preaching through the book of of James. James 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. It makes an interesting study. We chatted about it briefly this morning. The faith of demons. The text says a couple of things. They, uh, they believe in the one true God. Be clear. Demons do not worship idols. Demons lead people to worship idols. They know better. Demons don't worship idols. They know who the one true God is. You believe in the one true God? James says that demons do too. They know. They know. They're not missing information. They believe in the one true God of the Bible. 
Something else you can see in other parts of the New Testament. Demons believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Matthew eight twenty nine. These are demons. Behold, they cried out. What have you to do with us, O Son of God? They're speaking to Jesus. Have you come here to torment us before our time? Remember the demons? They get cast out and they go into that herd of pigs and they run over the cliff. That's the demons speaking to Jesus. A lot of people may have doubted who Jesus was. Not the demons. Not the demons. Son of God. Have you come here to torment us before our time? They sense, they know the absolute power, sovereignty, might of Jesus over all the forces of hell. They know they're vulnerable when they see Jesus. I love that. Love that. Uh Uh-oh. That's what they say to each other. They know who Jesus is. They believe in the one true God. They believe Jesus is God the Son. Three, they believe fully in the biblical doctrine of divine judgment. Look at that 29th verse of Matthew 8. And they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? That's the striking part of the verse. Apparently, even a sure knowledge of an appointed time of judgment isn't enough to create love for God. That's striking. These demonic beings don't doubt their coming doom. They just ask Jesus, is this the time? (laughs) They know that a day of judgment is coming. The unfortunate thing about being a demon is demons don't seem to have the ability to blank out any thought of future judgment and accountability the way people can. They, they know too much for their own good. People blank it out all the time. Give them a video game and thoughts of divine judgment go out the window. Right? Part of Satan's agony, the Bible says, is he knows he just can't escape this idea that his time is short. That's a quote. And he lives with that all the time. Here's a fourth thing about the faith of demons. They believe all these things so fully that they are visibly moved and emotionally shaken by the force of these truths on their souls, well, on their beings. You believe that God is one, James 2.19. You do well, even the demons believe, and shudder. Demons know Jesus died for sinners. They know the power of the kingdom of God. They know the coming judgment. They tremble before all of this. Yet in spite of all that, this is not the trembling heart that God says he looks on in Isaiah 66.2. So, Felix... James and his talk about demons. What, what is the difference, Pastor Don? What is the difference between that and the trembling heart, Isaiah 66 two, the one that God says he looks on, he delights in? A trembling heart, as Isaiah describes it, is not a heart that trembles just out of fear 
of God's wrath and judgment. I'm not saying there's no place for that. But a trembling heart, pleasing to God, fears anything that will destroy communion with this God. That's what it fears the most. What it fears the most is anything that creates distance in the relationship. Here's how I thought of illustrating the opposite of a trembling heart. I've told this story before, but it's close to my heart, and I think it illustrates the point. I can just vividly remember. It's, it's, uh, it is 53 years ago, and I can picture the whole thing, honestly. I can remember one day back in... Dad's pastoring days in Prince George, B.C. He pastored there for three years. And in, in ways the four Horban boys must have somehow missed, it had been a particularly bad day for my mother in terms of her assessment of the godliness of her offspring. <laughs> Apparently, we had broken the windshield of the RCMP officer's car next door with slingshots. The same week, we tried to hide two small ducks in a church bathroom that we had found. And then there was a small incident where we accidentally burned down an abandoned shed in a field across the road. So for whatever reason, my mother seems stressed out and much at prayer. My father wondered what to do. Would he go the typical old-school Slavic route of just taking the four boys and beating them to death? And that's what we were all expecting. And there was an element of a trembling heart, but not the kind we're talking about tonight. And my dad, obviously overestimating our maturity, or our righteousness, or both, He marched us all downstairs. Old house joined to the church, a parsonage, they used to call it. And the only way you could get from the house to the church was through the basement. And it was barely what we would class as a basement today, like a really low roof and, and, you know, more like a dungeon. And we went down there, and I can still see my mom. You know the, the, the washer-dryer that had those ring things at the top, and you'd wash the clothes, and then you'd put them through those two, and don't get your fingers in there? So there she was doing the laundry, and Dad marched us all down the creaky wooden stairs, and my mom was there, and she was crying. And my dad marched the four of us over there at the end of this, what seemed like quite a normal week to us, marched us all over there and made us all, one after another, starting with Paul, the oldest, working down to Donnie, the youngest, made us all say, Mom, I'm sorry for being so bad. And the theory was that we would feel so terrible at seeing my mother's tears that we would walk up with heavy hearts and never again be wicked children. 
And the four of us walked upstairs and went outside, and I'm telling you, as God is my witness, the only thought that went through our heads was, (laughs) did we dodge a bullet there? So our indifference to our mother's broken heart showed the smallness, right, and the self-centeredness and the immaturity of our own hearts. That's what was revealed there. We had, had we had trembling hearts in the Isaiah sense, we would have chosen any punishment rather than break the heart of a mother we love. That would be an Isaiah trembling heart. Everybody see the difference? This is the level on which many Christians live years of their walk with Jesus. It is somehow possible, James would say, as he writes to Christians, he writes to these churches, it is possible to go to church, it is possible to embrace the doctrines of the New Testament, and yet not live the bulk of life actually motivated by love for the Lord. It can be motivated by a sense of duty. It can be motivated by a sense of pride. It can be motivated by a desire for accomplishment. All of which can happen without a deep love for, oh, I want, I want to delight God with my life. And the thesis of this message is, any other motive than I want my life to delight God. Any other motive will break down. All right? Any other motive will break down. The heart that fears the Lord in the scriptural sense fears losing relationship, losing fellowship more than it fears anything else. Let me, let me try and so this is all theology. How do you bring it down into life? Here's a, here's a man. Picture him. Here's a man who feels hopelessly addicted to internet pornography. He tells himself he can't possibly quit. He's tried. And then he hears, while he's sitting on this internet site in the home office, he hears the footsteps of his wife coming down the hall, and he shuts the site off immediately. All right? Nothing strange about that. But you need to stop and say, what happened? What made this man who thought he could never, ever quit, what made him instantly want to turn that off? What was it in the sounds of her steps that gave him the sudden willpower, yea, the desire, to shut it down? Well, here's what happened. Suddenly, suddenly, there was a more powerful force introduced than his lonely sex. He feared suddenly losing his wife's respect or love, or whatever it might be, her steps coming down the hall injected a new motive into his heart. Do you get what I'm saying? And he could instantly do something that he couldn't do before she came. 
Think this through, church. Here's the reason for so many surface changes and temporary conversions in the church of Jesus Christ. The foundation never gets laid right at the beginning. People can and people do get lightly moved toward God by all sorts of reasons. There can arise a temporary fear of the Lord. A loved one is sick and near death, and the fear of losing them drives us to God. There can arise a temporary fear of the Lord. My teenager is going wild. I guess I better get serious about the Lord myself so they have something to follow by way of my example. But that's fear for my child, not a fear of the Lord. There can arise the fear from some major financial ruin or setback and the economy starts to go sour. My empire doesn't look as secure as I imagined. I'd better get things in order. I better start tithing. But that's rooted in the fear of my future, not a fear of the Lord. No, the the, the pure fear of the Lord, the trembling heart of Isaiah 66, 2, it may have many desires. I get it. We're all a mixed bag, a fallen mixed bag of motives. But, but, in a biblical trembling heart, the chief And dominating desire is that God be pleased in everything I do and that my deepest joy becomes his deepest joy. My deepest joy becomes his deepest joy. And listen to me, that life will never fall. Never fall. This is why, think it through, there's a logic to this. This is why the fear of the Lord is called what? The beginning of wisdom. Because this is the part you have to get right at the very start. That motive is the engine that has to drive everything else you ever learn, ever hear, ever practice in your walk with Jesus. That's the core. That's the core. It's the only biblical starting place for a sound life. This heart drives everything else about your walk with the Lord. And if, if that holy fear of the Lord is at the core of my mind, then all of the other choices of my life will be wise ones. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the root of wisdom. It's the source of everything else about your life that's ever going to be considered wise and beautiful, and good, and fruit-bearing. Trace it back to that root. Psalm 19.9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Psalm 111.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom All those who practice it have good understanding. Proverbs 9, 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Proverbs 15, 33. The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom. It's all over the book. The fear of the Lord is the foundation for any other instruction in godliness. Everything else. Even good pursuits will all crumble under the pollution of selfish motives. 
If I don't fear the Lord in this sense, delighting in him and trembling at the thought of not delighting in him. See, that's my motive for pleasing him when no one else is watching. If I don't fear the Lord more than I fear anything else, I will move along in my Christian life fairly well, but only up to a point. And then, then God will talk to me about some cherished area of self-rule. Usually it'll be an attitudinal sin, someone I have something against and I know it's wrong, but I'm not going to change and I'm not going to say I'm sorry and I'm not going to back down and I'm not going to soften my heart. Or he'll call me to make some specific sacrifice that seems just out of proportion to the way other Christians around me fulfill their calling to the Lord. I'm at least as holy as they are, and I'm measuring now by them, you see. Immediately, the deepest motive of my heart is exposed. The fear of the Lord is what keeps me making spiritually pure decisions. The fear of the Lord is clean. That's what the psalmist means. It keeps all the other areas of your life pure automatically if you get this part right. Psalm 131 to 4. I'm almost done. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who who, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Notice that unusual mixture. You are forgiving, therefore I fear you. But it's not that unusual at all. You think back to the way James reminded us of the way demons tremble and shudder before God. They don't love him. They just sheer fear him being angry. And David won't live on that level. He won't allow his heart to even consider that as long as God isn't keeping track of his sins, he can do as he pleases. That's what a lot of people think. To understand David's heart. You're forgiving, so I fear you. What David fears isn't punishment. It's grieving the God he loves. When your greatest delight becomes delighting God, all your decisions will be wise, all of them will be rightly motivated, and all of them will always be clean and pure. Everyone said...